fame is an abstraction. Fame is like someone else's conception of me. So I try not to be involved with it because I'm too greedy. If I start looking at it, then it always leads me somewhere bad. Looking at the comments always leads me somewhere bad. Caring and comparing myself to other people always leads me somewhere bad. I believe that the way to liberate myself from the belief that I can only be happy if I get what I want is to daily, moment to moment, remind myself that it's through service. My relationship with other people is an opportunity to be of service. It's not an opportunity to be served. That's what I have to maintain. Instinctively, I don't agree with people that are condemning of other people on the basis of some sort of ethnic or external data. My deepest belief is people are all the same. It's like that if you have a spiritual life, it is for you. It's not something that you would inflict on other people. That's Russell Brand. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. This is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. It's Sunday right now as of the moment I'm recording this, Father's Day, and uh, I'm in a hotel room in Denver alone, uh, contemplating whether I have enough time to squeeze a run in after I record this and still make my flight, but I'm not complaining. My life is an overflowing cornucopia of bounty. Uh, I'll be home with Julie and the kids later today, and I have to remind myself, I chose to be here. I chose it. And I'm grateful, I'm grateful because I had this amazing opportunity last night to moderate a live conversation, a live event uh, between Alex Honnold, the climber, and this guy called RJ Scaringe, who is the founder and CEO of this really interesting new electric car company called Rivian. Uh, and it was great. And the more I get to know Alex, the more I like him. I got to spend time with the executive director of his foundation, Dory Trimble, who's super impressive. Got to learn more about the great work that those guys are doing. I had a long lunch with RJ, who's just this really smart, grounded, impressive person who's executing on this giant vision at the moment uh, that extends well beyond groovy electric pickup trucks. Uh, I got to meet Ben Moon, one of my favorite outdoor filmmakers and photographers. I saw Scott and Jenny Jurek. It was cool. It's just one of those incredible experiences, opportunities that uh, I never could have foreseen or imagined happening when I started this thing six plus years ago. Anyway, uh, the event was live streamed on YouTube. Uh, it's pretty interesting. So if you're keen, you can go watch it on the Rivian YouTube page and I'll put a link up in the uh, show notes to that. Uh, speaking of things I could have never foreseen, uh, every podcaster has their dream list, guests they fantasize about having on their show. And, and, and people ask me often, like who is the number one person that you love to get? And I gotta say from day one, for me personally, it's always been Russell Brand. Uh, this is a guy who we've seen evolve in, in, in very real ways in real time under the glare of tabloids, the white hot spotlight of media attention that seems to track his every move, his relationships, his travails with heroin and alcohol addiction, his 
satirical, at times controversial takes on everything from politics, celebrity culture, materialism, to addiction, sobriety, religion, and, and basically everything in between. And I've always seen Russell as someone who is hyper intelligent, hyper verbal, a man who has traversed really all manner of extremes, a guy who's lived unapologetically and, and come out the other side to openly share his multitudinous experiences, his reflections on not just his personal trajectory, but, but on the greater human condition. This is a guy who has been grappling for some time out loud uh, in real time with his very specific and, and unique combination of wit and eccentricity and candor, honesty, vulnerability, and, and, and really extreme charm and sweetness with the great questions of our time, like what ails us and how can we deconstruct our social contracts to create a more fair and just society for all? And what is truly real? And what does it mean to live an intentional life, to be a spiritual being having a human experience and, and to find meaning and purpose in our existence? And I'm just delighted by this man. Uh, it's all coming up in a couple few, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. 
Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Russell Brand. Uh, I don't know that I need to provide any more prefatory remarks, but I would like to mention that among his many, many talents, Russell is an incredible writer who has authored several books I really love that you should check out, including Recovery, Freedom from Our Addictions, which is his sort of manual for self-realization based on his experiences with many addictions and the wisdom gained from his many years in recovery. And his most recent book is called Mentors, How to Help and Be Helped, which shares Russell's experiences and his experiments in helping others and being open to accepting help. We talk about it today on the podcast. Uh, Beyond that, he hosts one of my very favorite podcasts, Under the Skin, which explores, to use his words, what's beneath the surface of the people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history we are told with all manner of fascinating guests, which can be found on Luminary, a new subscription podcast platform, which you can get at luminary.com or by downloading the mobile app in the app store. This is a big one for me. I really dug it. I'm ecstatic to share it with you guys. I think you're gonna really enjoy it. As I said earlier, This man delights me. So this is me and the singular, beautiful, and awakened Russell Brand. Well, one of the things that I've always appreciated about your message and kind of what you put out to the world is that you're very much a traditionalist about the steps and sobriety in a world in which it seems like every year without fail, somebody comes up with some new idea that's followed by a lot of think pieces about how antiquated Alcoholics Anonymous is. And 
I'm all for new ideas and kind of spearheading, you know, interesting perspectives on sobriety and recovery, but the 12 steps are what got me sober and yeah. keep me sober. Yeah. They work, they've worked for countless people that I know. And it almost, it almost feels like you ha- you're, being, you're cutting across culture now. And it's, it's sort of a risk to come out and say, this actually works, you know? And it was so um, straightforward in your recovery book. And I really appreciated that. Thank you. I thought the only way I'd be able to do it was by speaking from a personal perspective. And I spoke to a lot of people from a personal perspective and acknowledging that anything that I know that's worth knowing has been taught to me. And I spoke to a lot of people that have got a lot more time than me and said, mm. and one person in particular, like I know a guy who's orthodox, you know, and I sort of said yeah. to him, right, I'm doing this thing. What are you, how do you know, how should I do this? And I thought if I, if this guy can, like if I can get him to say it's all right, then it's all right because he is, you know. You mean the, in terms of like dancing around the, the, the tradition of anonymity? Yeah, how yeah, I've done yeah. it is I never say which fellowships, if any, I right. go to. And that's mm-hmm. how I like, you know. For, it's, but it's almost like a technic. It's like a technicality, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, we're calling it the secret society. We all know what we're talking about here. Yeah, and yeah. and we're in a different world. Like I, I struggle with this because I don't know where that line is. I'm sure I've crossed it mm. many times, only in my own personal experience, not with anybody else's. But still, I'm I'm I never know quite where that demarcation that DMZ exists. Well, for me, like what I've done is I've never sort of spoke, I've never said, cause I've never said a particular fellowship name. I can't be claiming to speak on part of a, of uh-huh. a fellowship. <laughs> that 12 <laughs> steps is applicable to clutterers, yeah. alcoholics, mm. drug addicts, smokers, you know. And I've had probably the same as you on the way into addiction, food and sex issues, on the way out of addiction, yeah. food and sex issues. And, and now like the codependency, my relationships and the 12 step method is applicable universally. So um, I don't debate it because I say like for me, like you, I'm grateful to the to the groups that I belong to mm-hmm. in that they provided me, you know, saved my life. And without right. it, I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it on my own. But what I feel like is, well, I feel like it's an amazing technique and I feel like that yeah. there's as many ways of working it as there are people working it. I think it's robust enough. Someone said this thing about Shakespeare to me. I was doing, I'm developing a show where I use Shakespearean monologues to tell a biographical story. Uh-huh. I, I take some, or, and duologues, I take an argument between Caliban and Prospero and say, oh, this is what it was like with my stepdad, a, a speech from Richard III, this is what it's like to feel yeah. ugly, a speech from Hamlet about feeling loss and connection to comedy. Um, and the guy, this scholar from Warwick University, professor, uh, this guy, Tony, he said to me, Shakespeare is robust. Shakespeare can handle it. Like it's like, it's not so fragile and delicate that we have to stage it in this way. You have uh-huh. to say in that way, it can handle it. It's powerful stuff. You know, this is truth. It's got truth in it. I feel the same way with the 12 steps that, you know, it's like if you want to work it, excuse me, as an atheist or as a Buddhist or a Muslim, or if you like, how, you know, it can handle it because it's obviously universal. It predates yeah. the twelve-step fellowships in some form, at, in evident form, in the, through the Oxford group and those first-century yeah. Christian groups that were using it. And I'm um, gonna do a dissertation with Soas University in London to look at the origins of these ideas and where they're found. Are, mm. Where are they found? Is there precedent in Buddhism, Hinduism, Christian? You know, obviously yeah. it's mostly derived from Christianity and sort of Jungian psychology. Those are those things we sort of acknowledge. William James, you know, we uh-huh. know about those ideas and Emmett Fox, like sort of first century Christian sort of writers. But 
I'm interested in where are these ideas coming from? Like a proper scholarly dissertation? Yeah. Like legitimate straight up academic paper? Yes, which wow. was, I, I, done, uh, I, I was in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of a degree, religion in global politics. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Wow. Yeah, because I, well, mm. I like part-time, you uh -huh. know, and, it, and even- <laughs> Is class going on in the UK right now? Yeah, I'm meant to be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm trying yeah. to use this as for one of my modules, uh -huh. chat with Rich Roll. Um, and uh, like they, um, like within that, I can do a dissertation on the on the twelve steps and the origins yeah. of, of the twelve steps. It's a super like progressive modern college, you know, sort of very what do I say? Like influenced by like Foucault, Edward mm -hmm. Said, all that sort of dead kind of modern university is what it is. And I'm I want to learn about the origins. I want to. Become wise. Well, on certainly, the yeah. They're all they're all of the ideas, the core principles uh, are rooted in you know ancient principles that date back to you know finding the antecedent of that would be super interesting, and it begs the question of just how divinely inspired it was for you know Bill and Bob to kind of channel this information and you know put it on paper. Like, where did it come from for them? Like, they they were not they were not you know in they were not religious scholars. And yet they were able to grasp these ideas and translate them for a modern population. From the right ends that are available to us within uh, within fellowships, it, like it, Bill Wilson describes an epiphany, like a very sort of plain flash of light kind of sort of immediate mm. download, which if you heard it in a yogic tradition, you would go, oh my God, that's like the touch of, whoosh, like, right. you know, got some thunderbolt flash of God consciousness. And it also like sort of came through. Um, but when you look, when I break down the 12 steps, it's, it's essentially a tool for awakening, even in its own terms, mm -hmm. having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So it's, uh, I, I feel that the way I've come to regard it is that problem, substance misuse is a carapace, a holding pattern for like, you know, even within the confine of the steps, the defects of character that you'd come across in step six, my lust, my pride, my self-pity, my self-centeredness, selfishness, intolerance, etc. And the only way, I read something today, the only, I think from Yogananda, the only way to overcome, you know, we don't forgive anybody, you overcome the person uh -huh. that held grudges. Like, you know, like the self can never really forgive. The self is made up, a, a locked into identification. But if I can transcend the person that feels resentment, if I can become another man, then those resentments are another country. Right. There's no well, one that, to forgive. That process of iteration, are you becoming another man or are you becoming more of who you were always meant to be or more of who you truly are? I would prefer your version yes. just there. Yeah, yeah, the recovery of the person that you were meant to be, someone said once. And I like that before we become impeded and impaired and sort of tangled up and lost in sort of the sort of coordinates of a culture that overly stimulates primal desires and uh -huh. traps us in odd patterns. Yeah. So you've been sober for a long time now at this point, right? 15, 16, 16 years. And a half yeah, years. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how is that? How has your perspective on your recovery kind of changed over time? Like, where are you at with it now versus where you were at with it at five years or 10 years? I take it more seriously than ever. I recognize how, 
fallible I am and I see that there is no area of my life where I can't apply those principles. I try to spot as early as I can where I am attaching to some external mm-hmm. idea. I, I, and so I, I, I apply it universally now, whereas before it was enough just not to drink and take drugs. I think mm-hmm. if I can not drink and take drugs, that would be fantastic. But I'm not interested in addressing my behaviour in other areas. Who wants to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Who wants to deal with that stuff? No. There's no consequences to yeah. it. You know, for for yourself anyway, and so like it's it's come very slowly for me. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like I have a certain mental facility in some ways, but sort of spiritually, um, it was not a flash of light. It's a sort of slow. Hello, I'm learning. But you're you've always been a seeker. Yes, you know, and and perhaps that that search for wholeness or for answers. Um, has been pursued in unhealthy manners from drugs and alcohol to sex and relationships and all the like. But at at your core, you're somebody who's committed to finding answers and filling that hole and you know achieving connection and wholeness. I feel it is our natural you know? state to look for that kind of connection. I think that we're all looking for it in one way or another. And I suppose I must have strong drives. You know, yeah. that's what, where I see it now. And I'm trying to uh, uh, see those, what those drives do if I don't continually demand things of them. If I don't mm-hmm. say, get, get me in a movie, get me laid. Yeah. Like, and if I just say, well, what do you want to do? What happens? What happens? Non- to be out somewhere the like non-attachment. this. non-attachment. Yeah, but you'd love this book. I've just, it's, it's not, I don't think it's out yet because I was reading an advanced copy, but it's by some one of them people whose surname's Rinposh, like he's an abbot oh, at yeah, a yeah, yeah. Tibetan monastery, uh-huh. Nepalese fella. And he decided to go on a wandering retreat. And like his father gave him one bit, he's believed to be a Talmud or Talmud, like, you know, a reincarnated lama mm. or whatever. His father gave him one piece of advice, if you ever do this wandering tradition, tell no one. So eventually he leaves his monastery, sneaks out in the dead of night. And first, like the way he described like his anxiety and getting into a taxi, then his irritation being on a train with other people. And then his sense of attachment to his robes. He says, he says like my whole life I've been trained in non-attachment, like from... I learned language, the, you know, at the, at the same time as I learned nothing is real, death is coming, uh-huh. study these flowers, everything's going to go, don't get attacked, you know. And the guy, and this, but the practice of it is entirely different. Because he would like necessarily, he became, he was attached to non-attachment. He was uh-huh. attached to his identity as a prominent abbot within a bloody monastery. So that, that makes me feel like, oh, well, we can be forgiven ourselves, of ourselves, those of us that have been cultivated and grown to be egoic and individualistic and materialistic and to regard things as commodities. Well, how would we not? How would we not? If it, well, know. that's the malaise that sits at the very center of everything that ails us as a culture, you know, socially and politically, this attachment to identity, our, our egoic center and individualism at its core. Yes, yes. How are we gonna overcome these and achieve this utopian society of which you speak so fondly? <laughs> well, my only, uh, I reckon, Rich, it's gotta yeah. be this. It's gotta, like, it's, I believe it's through service. I believe that the way to liberate myself from the belief that I can only be happy if I get what I want is to daily, moment to moment, remind myself that I had, like I wrote about it in in loads of books, I always mm-hmm. mention it because it nags away at me. I When I was met Amma, 
uh, one of the times I had the privilege of spending some time with Amma. I went to her ashram and after you get the mantra off her and the hug, one of her, the sort of Brahman, these more heavy dudes in sort of like robed up and pretty serious, not the maverick shamanic mm. Amma, you know, sort of a straight out of nowhere person, but the sort of inculcated and educated Brahman. One of them took me, I was in the, get you go get the mantra properly, you get reminded of it in case you didn't notice it in the giddy bliss of the hug. And we're in some sort of garden on the ashram and I, I looked out the window and watched him and he was literally letting a butterfly out of his hand like and it was flying off oh god this guy's uh-huh. so holy and when he gave me the mantra he said to me and the material world has got nothing else to give you now Russell the material world can only take from you and it made my stomach sort of pull in it felt uh-huh. like I sort of I felt a lower chakra tug right. of I don't like resisting that resisting that <laughs> yeah were you able to hear it I did hear it. I yeah. heard it in my body. And and it's only recently, maybe five years later, that I thought, oh, no, this is a, a blessing because it means I don't need to go through life thinking people are going to approve of me. Someone's going to give me fellatio. Someone's going to give me a, a pat on the back or an automobile. There's nothing. There's nothing to get. And I have to continually be reminded of it, almost relationship mm. to relationship, exchange to exchange. Like the, you're not in this car to get something from this driver. You're not going on Rich Roll's podcast to get something from Rich. You're like, mm. like, this is, like, I have to continually remind myself. But that muscle of, of continuously, continuous practice is something you learn in recovery through, you know, con- constant surrender repeatedly throughout the day, minute by minute, hour by hour at times. Yes, we're fortunate, aren't we, to have learned it in in the sort of obnoxiously obvious form of substance misuse and alcohol misuse, it's so bloody obvious. And because we we had to. Yeah, (laughs) no choice. (laughs) If uh, we wanted to re-enter society. What happened to you? It was, uh, I was pretty much a purist with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, I was too afraid of drugs because I knew it would be just way too enticing, um, but booze took me down. And uh, you know, it, 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 my story is not the craziest story of all time. It's not super rock and roll, but it was dark and pathetic and sad. There was nothing sexy or romantic about it. You know, at the end, I was drinking. You know, I would I would drink in the morning, vodka tonics in the shower. I was working as a lawyer. I was sneaking drinks throughout the day and just you know biding time till I could leave and go into a blackout and wake up in strange compromising situations, mm. <laughs> wondering where my car is and what happened. And, you know, the police got involved and mm. there was, you know, judges and jails and things like that to contend with and family fleeing for the hills until, you know, I basically, you know, came to that realization that if I wanted to live, I was gonna have to get sober and I went to a rehab in Oregon for a hundred days. So you were in you were in treatment for like three months, right? So you know, like that's a that's a longer, more extended stay than the usual kind of twenty eight or twenty one day spin cycle in the UK. I think it's uh, standard. Oh, to, is it? Like, it should or, be. Yeah, although it's not easy to get treatment for free now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're getting harder and harder. Yeah, I went to a place called Focus Twelve, which is sadly now closed down due to lack of funding, which was a twelve step. Uh, treatment center. It wasn't residential when I went there, so I had to stay in a bed and breakfast run by this phenomenal atheist man, Chip Summers, who was my first mentor in the program. And uh, like I went there as a sort of ancillary. I didn't see this as like a watershed transitional Mm -hmm. moment. I just thought I'll do this and then I'll get on with my plan to become 
successful get people off your back yeah that's right that's yeah. what i was doing i like someone rem- i heard someone say recently we should remember that you know that when people are not enthusiastic early in their recovery try to remember how we were like right because you know, i knew now now that i've become a zealous kind of amount i kind of expect people yeah. to be very devoted and dedicated and i'm so irritated when people just start like why don't you listen what's wrong with you mm. i'm speaking to someone today and it's a person i care about a lot that's actually as far as i know not using at the moment but she is a person that if she does not walk the line she's fucked you know mm. like and the situation she gets in it's almost like that. I sometimes feel it sort of karmically. You know, there are certain sort of celebrities or famous people that the problems that come in their life seem sort of kind of low rent, trashy problems. You think it's almost like, it's almost as if your karmic essential self has not acknowledged, how could it, <laughs> that you have now ascended to some sort of privileged position. Like, you know, you notice it in my country with like footballers or whatever, people from regular sort of blue collar, I guess, backgrounds, that the kind of issues they get in, it's as if it's somehow ordained. Mm. like you know the, the sort of the mess of it all well you know yeah when people won't listen I think what is it what are you resisting what are you fighting but I only have to look at myself and the things of that course. I resist and fight yeah. regular holding on to that your best friend until it's you know pride from your dying clutch <laughs> of course you know it's not easy well you talk about Chip and you talk about Alma in, in the new book Mentors which I enjoyed very much you're, you're you. a brilliant writer it's it's fantastic and it was that book is different than what I was expecting. I thought it was, it, it, given the title, I was sort of thinking this is gonna be a more straightforward kind of self-helpy kind of thing, but it's really a narrative that unfolds in an in a autobiographical sense in which you weave in these people that have had profound impacts on your life at various stages. Yeah, it's the only way that I know how to write mm-hmm. it, it, prose as it turns out is I, which I think it comes from comedy is that if uh, are you if i stray too far from authentic personal experience i feel that i'm not in territory that i know well so even when writing about ama or like a bruce lloyd a therapist that i write about in there uh-huh. or jimmy mulville a mentor of mine or like ama as you have said or the man that teaches me bjj chris yeah. clear i still have to use it on how how do these influences work on my neurosis now do you know that filmmaker that is called adam curtis he's a british filmmaker you love his stuff uh-huh. if you've not seen it he like uh, makes it he start with century of the self in which he talks about how the uh the, the insights of Freud were used to establish the profession of marketing and PR, Century of the Self. You'll love that. Bitter oh, wow. Lake on the war in Afghanistan. It's kind of sort of a postmodern Baudrillard sort of take on those kind of, uh, the way that narratives appear and are kind of, I don't know, disingenuous and used to manipulate power. He's a brilliant, mm-hmm. but very sort of pop in a way. He takes on hard subjects, but he's very pop. He said that we live in our heads. And like, so he said that my, he says that my right, he was kind enough to say that my writing style is beneficial rather than uh, relentlessly solipsistic uh-huh. in that like we live now continually in the narrative of our mind the sort of like the sort of endlessly spiraling dialogue what now what do i do what do i have now i'm gonna get that you know there's no sort of, like and he says like to hear that he said like Balzac or Dickens like a century or so ago, they're describing geography and phenomena. Mm. Now he goes, everyone lives here in their head, in their thoughts, 
You know, so like when I, so even, so for me, the journey I'm continually trying to make is that there's a macro journey of how can, how can the unenlightened man become enlightened? And then how do I moment to moment when I'm, when I re-engage with, oh, I want this, I want these people to approve of me, I want that to happen. How do I get back? You know, if I'm startled or suddenly fearful or suddenly full of desire, how do I transition back to it? So I'm continually dealing with that voice. Yeah, well, it's the hero's journey and there's something about your innate humanity and, and, and your willingness to be vulnerable in the storytelling matched with like this facility for language that you have that makes it very compelling. And then you'll surprisingly kind of zing people every once in a while with you know, a paragraph about like, here's how you can do this too. But it's done in such a way where you don't really feel like you're being preached to in any way because you're caught up in the storytelling itself and, Thank the, you. and the humanity of it. Because I don't like being told what to do. I've never liked it. Who does, <laughs> you know? And yet there is a whole massive industry built around these books that are telling people what to do and people love reading them and buying them. So I, I often question, it. but I question whether they're effective. I think, I think people read these books, a very small percentage of them, take that wisdom and put it into action. But I think a lot of people just feel good about buying them and maybe feel a little bit better about reading them. Mm. And, and then it becomes this sort of placebo that- You might be you know, right, except placebos can be Sometimes effective. they work, correct. Yeah, like, I mean, but like, you see, you've made a transition in your life and it's fucking hard, isn't it? To sort yeah. of go, right, I'm not gonna be, I'm going to be fit. I am going to put myself through physical trauma or stress. Yeah, and so when somebody comes to you and says, Russell, tell me how you know you did this or how do I go from here to there? And, and what they want is a distilled, you know, six point plan that they can execute on. And life doesn't work that way. And it's through the storytelling, the humanity that we can connect with something that can live within us that has staying power, that resonates, that we will remember a year or five or 10 years later. Mm. Yes. I think, yes. I don't know. I agree with that. I believe mm. that, that, but how to frame it again within the 12 steps, which is how I, I, you know, again, like it is robust. I feel like it works. Like that if I'm, if I surrender, okay, that's the first thing. If I go, all right, I do want to change. I do not want to have this body. I do not want to have this job. I do not want to have these feelings about my partner. I don't want to feel like I'm an inadequate father. You know, once I recognize, once I come to that point of I've got a problem and my life's unmanageable, then am I ready to come to believe that I can be restored to sanity, that it is possible. I like the optimism of the program, that the mm. program assumes that it is possible to be happy, right. not like it's not a, some sort of Protestant, we are born to suffer, suffering is good, work hard, flagellate, you know, because I feel that, you know, that I can see how that idea enters because the death of self, the death of the individual, the flagellation, the mortification of the flesh, the loss of the individual does sound a lot like, you know, tear yourself apart. But I like the bliss of Hinduism. I like the bliss of the Vedas. I like the love, the voluptuousness, the senses. I don't want to become passionless. I don't think. I don't, you know, when I meet, I, like, you know, you meet enlightened yeah. people sometimes. I like the mischievous, like, dudes that are on your wall back uh -huh. in your house, you know, like, because when you meet people, well, I have transcended to <laughs> yeah. Uh, Come on, let's get right. or the or the 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 self-proclaimed enlightened person that just hugs you a little bit too long. A bit too much staring yeah. and a yes. bit too much hugging. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's more to this than staring and hugging. <laughs> know, Although right? staring and hugging are part uh-huh. of it. You can like get the, the Ripanash who has to take it out into the world right? yeah. and actually fucking live it. That's what's good about that particular uh-huh. book is the way that he's saying, oh my God, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Now I'm on this train. I'm like, these people fucking stink. Right. And he yeah, goes, I have to remind myself. Amateur. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Spiritual like, amateur. Come on, this is it. If you can't yeah. work it on a train, how are you going to work it on the next plane? But like he's um, saying, you know, I have to remind myself these people have got a board birth and a death and that uh-huh. they're the same as me. Like it just shows yeah. you how that these principles are challenged in the material world. That's why I think we need that fundamental spiritual belief that this, we need to somehow have the faith to have the commitment. This is not real. This is not real. And you can see how people... You know, how that became the kind of, in a sort of secularized Christian cultures, oh, right, yeah, heaven, the afterlife, Mm -hmm. so that the billionaires can get on with being rich and we just scuttle about in the rubble. No, no, no. It's to, like, someone said to me in, uh, like, uh, one of them, uh, like, I met with a group in New Orleans and this man went to me, like, he was off to, he looked, he was such a romantic fellow, so bearded Uh and stained shirt and some sort of naval looking hat and heavy and leathery. And he uh, went to me, like he was off to help the homeless and we were in New Orleans, so there was no shortage. And he goes, uh, he goes uh, yeah, the material world, this, he says, this is, this is uh, just crumbs. Don't settle for crumbs. I want to be at the banquet. To recognise that anything that occurs within this limited bandwidth, whether it's uh, sort of Lamborghinis or limitless orgies, it's nothing. It's taking place on a, on a, a pinhead, you know, but then yeah. we have access to some kaleidoscopic experience, but does take discipline. The Maya... Yeah, bloody thing. It's gorgeous, you know, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. gorgeous illusion. Intoxicating. You know? a delicious tasting I mean, lie. I, uh, I, I agree with you with the optimism of the steps, but I also appreciate the matter of fact nature of them. It's like, like you know, the, the, you will have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Not like you might, or, you know, it's possible but like just do these things mm. and you will have this transformation and it doesn't matter how you feel about it or how much you're questioning it. And mm. the expansion occurs because look, recovery is littered with people that come and you came in as an atheist and now you're this like, you know, you're ready to start your own religion basically. Working on <laughs> that, know, yeah. yeah. Where, where are we with that? Starting the old cult. You know, the acolytes are, are <laughs> you know, everywhere at this point. This I don't know, I just need thing. to get the right kind of blanket, work on that stare yeah. and long cuddle. And then this it's- is, uh, This is very good for your ego, I would imagine. Oh, that's exactly yes. what I go for, the irony. <laughs> yeah. The irony. How are you, how, how do you, you know, sort of think about who you are and what you do now? Like you're doing all these things, you're, you're you know, you stand up, these live performances, these like one man shows, you're here in town because you're, you're doing ballers, right? Like you're acting in this TV show, you've got books um, and you're kind of, you know, this, this sort of person of wisdom at large, right? On social media, how do you balance all of those things and, and think about like the choices that you have to make to kind of move forward in this bearing in mind, this this um, commitment to being not attached to results and the feeding of the ego. I look discipline. I try not to live in abstraction. I try not to look at, I try not to, fame is an abstraction. Fame is like someone else's conception of me. So I try not to be involved with it. Because, not again, because of because I'm too greedy. If I start looking at it, then it always leads me somewhere bad. Looking at the comments always leads me mm. somewhere bad. Caring and comparing myself to other people always leads me somewhere bad. I'm living in Los Angeles. I don't have to look very far to see people that are more successful, more famous, better looking, nicer abdominal muscles uh-huh. than me. But generally so, more unhappy. 
Well, I, I, I wonder. I, I, I wonder. So, like, how I is is with a degree of immediacy, whether that's trying to live in the moment by listening, or whether it's like you know, like I can't believe how fundamentally bloody transformative having a family was. I mean, I suppose mm. I should have preempted it because it's yeah. kind of obvious in a way. But like having those, you know, having my wife and daughters in my life has uh, necessarily made me present present yeah. and like does it matter what's going on I just don't spend so much time looking at abstract things or trying to nurture yourself from the outside in some sort of definitely plainly illusory thing like what someone says on your phone you know like like stay here with them look at them yeah. listen to them and when I'm able to do it and I have to remind myself I look rich I always feel slightly fraudulent because this is stuff I'm doing right now. I'm doing uh -huh. it right now. I'm not like, I don't feel any different from when I was a little kid. That's why I believe in that recovery ideal. I think we're all born with that attack, with that connection to a degree of mm, purity or at least oneness. Perhaps oneness is a, a better term. But like, you know, I am sometimes holding a beautiful little baby and thinking, mm, I'd rather fucking watch football or look uh -huh. at my, and then I think, no, no, stop it, you maniac. I'm going to touch on. my phone. <laughs> yeah, the phone, <laughs> phone wants me. Yeah. And I want phone. So how I, what, how I do it is by like letting go, like by not, I don't trust anymore the things that I used to want, like various form. I'm not going to allow myself to repackage egoic adulation in some other format. I really I like, you know, I always- But you had, keep pursuing these, these, these avenues that are just <laughs> ripe, ripe for that, right? I've decided to tackle like, is the there, Yeah. <laughs> How about starting a religion or becoming this guru? I mean, there is, you know, of anything that you could enter into, like this is feeding that monster. The one, so that caution, I will you know? definitely tackle this tendency I've yeah. had towards egotism by setting myself up <laughs> right. as a sort of online digital <laughs> Jesus. Once and for all, let's nip it in the bud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you should see the way I drift around uh, after my live shows or semi in tears, right. like uh, looking at people yes. lovingly outreaching my hand. As they follow you down Melrose. <laughs> yes. I'm a comedian, uh -huh. thank God. I'm a comedian. Mm. So like, I know how, it's all ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. Mm. Uh, it's funny to me. It's funny to me. And that, that is, I suppose if I can bring anything to this world, into to this conversation, by this world, I mean this idea that none of us are ever going to be fulfilled by trying to uh, augment our identities and acquire material and status uh, uh, attainment through one another. Like it, it, the thing I think I can contribute is by being sincere but funny by, by continuing to acknowledge this is ridiculous, this is stupid, mm. this is happening in limitless space, don't take it too seriously. Like, you know, that's sort of the thing that I'm trying to stay focused on because, you know, like in a world where we, we've got Eckhart Tolle, we've got Tony Robbins, we've got all these people that are sort of profound, powerful communicators that know how to do this stuff. And I think, well, there's no, like, you know, all like any of us, I suppose, if we are authentic and true to ourselves, then it's gonna get taken care of. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, 
It's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, I would consider you one of those powerful communicators. I mean, as I said earlier, like you have this facility for for language and this ability to, you know, uh, create a narrative and argue your point of view in a in a in a pretty um, remarkable way. But when I hear you, I often wonder. I think this is so easily 
this can be easily used, not just as a weapon, but also as a shield, like as mm-hmm. a mask. You know, I can hide behind this facility that I have and keep myself safe. You might be right. I mean, yeah. I have always done that. Here are some other methods though that I've got. Um, like I don't look at porn. I don't objectify mm. people. I'm only, I'm in a monogamous relationship. I know I can't get anything by cheating people. I mean, in the sense of like trying to get something from people. So like, it's, again, it's the program. I'm running everything through a program. I'm just running everything. Like, you know, anytime that I feel a spike in my energy, fear or desire that destabilizes me, you know, in a step 10, anytime we are disturbed, mm. anytime I'm disturbed, I'm checking it with other people. So even if I did start a cult, it would be a good one because uh, I wouldn't be sleeping with anybody. Like, I mean, them cults will go wrong when they go, I've come up with a system yeah. where I have sex with everyone. Yeah. Oh, that wasn't in the original brochure. Well, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's good. It's spiritual. There's some corollary to the rule that you'll have to come up with. I mean, I think that's why people like in positions of spiritual authority are... are celibate because these are powerful powerful energies i got friends that are like uh swamis and like uh they hug men and shake hands with mm, females yeah. because it's these are f- powerful forces these are the forces that carried our material form here the desire to procreate the desire to have status these energies are bigger than individuals like the little sort of um what's that beautiful analogy thinking that the egoic self is in charge of the whole self is like a stowaway on a cruise liner thinking he's the captain we're just hello there i'm russell there's all these biological energies all these forces this stardust stuff thrusting and fucking and me just floating around in there like a little gorgeous pippin so it's not that I don't take that guy too seriously. As long as I shut down the avenues that I know that he would explore, like can I have a golden throne and all of those sort of right. things. In the Bikram sort of way. Is that what happened yeah. with Bikram? Uh, he had a big like golden throne that he would sit on at the there was, <laughs> the end of There's his, not like, enough irony in the world to, for there to be, <laughs> I'm going to legitimately have a golden throne. And his fleet of Rolls Royces. <laughs> you know. uh, look, yeah. But it all started good, just like everything, right? Yeah, Osho you know? or Bagwan as he was then. Right. It always, you watched that series, right? Loved that, it. Yeah, it was incredible. How do you, go, I mean, isn't it wonderful what uh, the incrementally the place you can get to? Right, peace and love. We're all one, all democratic. People are free to be who they are sexually. We're not going to inhibit anyone's identity. And within a couple of months, we're poisoning a salad bar. I know, because <laughs> we're fucking human. But if you take that lens, <laughs> if, you, if you shift that aperture over to politics, you can make the same argument. If you look at whether it's, you know, Paul Ryan, or bar, whoever these people are, like what were they like as children? What initially motivated them to go into politics? I would imagine all of them had some service-minded, you know, aspect yes. that got corrupted by, you know, the egoic beast that takes over, and suddenly they find themselves saying things that they know in their heart of hearts they don't actually believe, mm. and millions of people are impacted. Yes, Rich, and also bureaucratic and administrative systems shouldn't it be inhered with power. It's just for organization. I feel like these systems necessarily have to be curtailed. You know, the, the principle that, you know, our leaders are trusted servants, they do not govern. Like, you mm. know, like the, the very simple principles, like uh, these systems can 
never be used to bring about more equality. They will always sustain themselves. I don't pay too much attention, and perhaps I should, to the particular individuals that are occupying positions of power. One, because of a conversation I had with that Yanis Varoufakis who ran Syriza. He said that once they, you know, they won that election in Greece, they said, we're not repaying that debt. It's all been a swindle. Yeah. Screw you. Uh, in the words to that effect, I'm paraphrasing. But when they had the meetings with the EU, they re- he said that he recognised that even, I think it was called something like Wolfgang Schelber, I can't remember the proper name, but that the German finance minister he said that man only has the power that that role affords him he has like so that individual's power is irrelevant the system is a self-sustaining thing the people that is in the person that's in the role of president or chancellor or prime minister regardless of the particular inflection of their political affiliations there are systemic restrictions mean that no meaningful change can occur no meaningful change can occur their Mm. primary relationships with economic interests that exist above the level of democracy we all know that that's why there's a rise in population at the moment, which is being ludicrously and ironically ridden primarily by the right, which will further, uh, what do I say, fortify those interests. So, but populism in itself, I don't think is a bad thing. People becoming popularly interested in politics, people thinking, I can get involved in this. People really, uh, the more people have direct control over the things that impact their lives, the better. It is a kind of anarchism. Communities governed and controlled by the people that live within them. Schools governed and controlled by the people that use them. Hospitals governed and controlled. Like, this is, of course, there needs to be some, I suppose, there needs to be some kind of centrist systems. People tell me armies, roads, police forces, etc. But I feel that the principle should be minimized. Decentralized, community-oriented, populist. I think so. Utopian. Do you do you do you think here's what I'm curious about? Because I've listened to you talk about this stuff quite a bit. And and there's so much truth and wisdom in so many of these things that you say, and yet I find myself saying, Yeah, but that's that's not gonna happen. Is that my pessimism? Is this reality? And how much of this do you actually believe in terms of its possibility and evolution? Or are you holding this line way out on the edge so that we can have these conversations and open up um, you know, the possibility uh, to just even begin to entertain them. Joseph Campbell said, nothing's ever changed. He said, you know, like the great master of comparing myths and looking, you know, yeah. like power preserves itself, leaders behave how leaders behave. Um, <clears throat> I do believe in it because I feel that feudalism transitioned to capitalism and that, that we have not exhausted the possible models for organizing systems. And this is another very simple and basic tool, and perhaps these are the only ones I can understand, is when those of us that think that the state of affairs is lamentable and wrong and we would like to change it, uh, look for a moment at, is there, are there any institutions or individuals that would regard the system as it currently stands as beneficial and fortuitous? Yes. Well, then that's why it's like that. It's uh. not for the, for some institutions and individuals, it's not pro- a problem that it is this way. And I don't believe in conspiracy in the sense of, um, you know, sort of malevolent cabals, but I just feel that there are sort of sustaining systems and interests that won't be broken unless there is reasonable opposition. And that reasonable yeah. opposition can only come from... I suppose organization rejection rebellion. Mm. Do you have uh, <clears throat> do you have a sense that that we can change these systems though at least in the US? Yes, I do feel that. I do feel that because I feel like don't you feel like with the current political situation that there 
it, that there is it's, it's a bit of a um, an anomaly. You know, that, that's an odd thing that happened, Trump becoming president. Like, you know, it's a sort of a I tend to think that, but I also think that's dangerous thinking. And I think that, that, that because thinking that or professing that is to kind of deny the perspective of so many people that empowered him to take office. I would never belittle or dismiss the people that have reverted to ethno-nationalistic and... Uh, sort of patriotic and patriarchal, even if not explicitly so, ideologies. Because what the ground, like, I feel like that it's naive even to look at how can you divorce Trump from Obama? There was like one minute Obama was president, one minute later Trump was president. So there's an obvious relationship and corollary. And prior to that, like, you know, these things are ha- like, they are happening in relationship with one another. And the feelings of, um, I feel this, all things that happen on the material plane are a reflection of subtler energies that are taking place in the consciousness and being of individuals. And these these energies become systemized. If enough people feel angry and antagonized, then they will respond to to beacons or that's uh, that's what I want to say, corroborate or attract that energy. And I understand why people are angry. I recognize why people are angry. I think it's, they're not mad. They're right. The neoliberalism abandoned the very people that it was supposed to be mm-hmm. protecting the working class people of the, you know, cause this is happening everywhere. Right. It's not just happening in America. Yeah, they've been looked over. They have been unheard and uh, their lives have not improved. Their, the quality of their lives have declined and there's a sense of desperation there, you yeah. know, and that's gonna manifest in, you know, all kinds of unpredictable things that we're now seeing happening. I have great compassion for that, but I think it is, you know, yes, the material world is a reflection of our consciousness. And I feel like right now, we're in a very interesting moment in which where I look within my, you know, admitted bubble, I see a profound um, expansion in awareness and consciousness. Mm. You know, it because seems I, like that, because it? I surround myself with those kinds of people, I suppose. But also, I think even peering outside of that, because of look, you know, the internet and social media, there's a lot of problems with that. But it allows you know these kinds of messages to profligate in a way that they couldn't before. Yes, yes, yes. And I think we are seeing a lot of people waking up to these kinds of ideas, the kind of ideas that you're talking about. At the same time, there is an equal, if not stronger, opposition force. It's like dark and light. It is Joseph Campbell. Like these are, it's like Star Wars that's happening right now. And it's a race to the finish with the, the ticking clock being like the environmental crisis that we're facing at the moment. Yes, the fact that we are individuals is an attractive argument because we, we really do seem like we are individuals wrapped in bags of skin. It's hard to imagine that it is perhaps more important and inverted commas more true that we are one, that the consciousness that you experience and the consciousness that I experience and the consciousness all of us in this room are experiencing is the same phenomena merely disrupted by more superficial, uh, uh, what do I say, apparel, like that we're the same, yeah. we are one. It, you know, it's easy to tell people you, that your interests are most important, look after yourself, look after your most immediate family. Well, this is the gestalt of modern Western society. 
What does that mean, the gestalt? Like this, this is the, the momentum and it, like everything is organized around that very principle. And there's a tremendous amount of momentum behind it that's all pushing us forward. In a, in a manner in which we're not even consciously aware of it. And we certainly don't question it. There's some Native American activist, I think he might've been called Russell Mead or something. And I think he, like ludicrously, he actually was in Last of the Mohicans as an actor and consultant, but he was uh-huh. pretty out there radical activist. And he said, like, you know, there seems to be an assumption from uh, people on the left that we, the native people of this land, should form a natural affiliation with the Marxists. He goes, but for us, he says, Marxism and capitalism, these are, different sides of the same coin. Both assume that the land is something to be plundered. Both assume an industrialized and therefore post-industrial society. Both of us have sort of, both of those systems are resource-based. So we look at things from a very, very narrow perspective, even when we consider ourselves to be considering a broad gamut of political Mm. ideas. It's a very, very narrow spectrum. In the same way, I would argue that our sensory uh, spectrum is narrow and limited. But like, you know, we're not going to start questioning whether or not there are different entities floating about and so, or different vibrational <laughs> yeah. frequencies and forces communicating with us continually. We can't operate on that assumption. We've got to get some dinner. We've got to get to bed. We've got to get laid. These are the things that seem uh, of most importance, except it isn't working and it won't work for people to uh, to elect right-wing populist leaders. We are, like C.S. Lewis brilliantly argues in his book, Mere Christianity, that the, the case for God is not made externally through theology, but is made in our own belly that we know when we've behaved badly. We know when we're doing something wrong. And he denies that these are acculturated uh, ideas that we've been taught, oh, don't do that, do as you will be done by. Because he says there is no culture in the world where he goes, there's cultures where a man may take one wife and cultures where a man may take five wives, but there is no culture where a man is applauded for running away in battle. That there there is a a sense of good within us. But we're so disconnected from who we are. When, When you're priority is the pursuit of individual grandeur and material accumulation mm. and status uh, at the you know at, at the forsaking of community and intimacy and connection and uh, you know service and all of these ideas you become almost disassociated with that belly that's telling you 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 have gone astray and so that signal isn't even connecting that, yes, that's right. I mean, that is what's happening. Right, so that's the beauty and the blessing of being a drug addict or an alcoholic because you had this intervening force that precipitated the crisis, that accelerated it and forced us to confront it. But I think most people are are experiencing a low grade version of that, that they can ride out their entire life without ever having to confront it because they're scrolling and they're on Netflix and they're doing whatever. They're fucking thinking about yes. the promotion or the next car that they're going to Yes, lose. yes. I've done all of these things today. And I have too. I've looked at Netflix. I've thought a little do, bit about yeah. cars. But what, but what I, you know, so what, but what David Lynch, I, I was talking uh, to, you have his book here. Right. Uh, I, I was talking to him yesterday. He very, he's, perspective seems to me, I wouldn't claim to speak on behalf of David David Bloody Lynch. I mean, can he even? <laughs> Who can? Even himself. Anybody, yeah. What the hell's going on in Mulholland Drive? <laughs> Who the fuck's that guy by the bins? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so, but like he's- Deconstruct seen, that, mind's, that, that man's <laughs> mind for me, please. I just sort of think yeah. like, I can't deconstruct it with language. I just look at what his face is doing and see if I can understand right. that on some level. But like, he thinks, just meditate, just meditate, teach more people to meditate, get people meditating, connect people spiritually, don't worry about the admin. There's like, a trust at, with that. 
Yeah, a trust faith. that you will go that 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 will then empower somebody to go on their own journey, to, and then ultimately they'll be able to hear that that C.S. Lewis signal in their belly. Yeah, well, I think we got to do that. I mean, I don't know. That seems, I like that though. I like the idea of give people the resource of meditation. Mm-hmm. Give people the resource of the twelve steps. Help people. Like, what is positive? It seems to me because now that I'm, let's face it, middle aged, that the younger people appear to be. Uh, acknowledging and rejecting the idea that they are that their primary means for fulfillment is going to be economic and material. It doesn't like it. seems like people are like oh, no. Yeah, that is a huge seismic shift in our uh. culture, and I find great comfort in that. How that will play out remains to be seen, but it's super interesting, and it's something that I haven't seen in my whole life. No, like your kids are. You've got some kids so that are in their twenties. Two boys. Yeah, they're twenty three and what are they 24. like? What are they saying? They're amazing. Yeah, and they're pursuing their dreams. They're artists. They're, you know, look. They they have to meet their obligations, but they're certainly not, you know, pursuing the dollar. You know, yes. that's not that's not what's igniting their spirit. Yes, I think it's possible. I think it is possible. You know, we forget that this that in this young country of yours just 50 years ago there was so much social unrest and disruption and of course the systems that govern were able to relocate that disruptive energy within its accepted framework the we can do what we want of the 60s becoming the I can do what I want of Mm -hmm. the 80s but it's such a short time ago it's such a short time ago it's the same with this 12-step system only 70 80 years ago different ideas are bleeding into culture and even what we're doing with these these intellectual pirouations of our fucking endless podcasts uh, we are giving people access to ideas too many and concepts podcasts. there's so many aren't there why don't we just like we're going to withhold podcasts for just a couple <laughs> of weeks to give you some fucking time to get yeah. on and meditate <laughs> do something valuable with your life yeah um, well um sorry go ahead well i'm saying that at least like if i was uh, 16 now, obviously the, my primary use of the internet would be masturbating. But I'd like right. to think that amidst that, I would be coming across podcasts where people are talking about ideas that just, you know, when I was at school, people weren't talking about this kind of stuff. It was Can like, you, you imagine for free in your hand, you would have access to all of these kinds of conversations and how would that have shaped your thinking and the decisions that you made as a young person? I mean, I don't know, I was drunk and loaded the whole time, so probably not, but mm. for a lot of people, uh, you know, especially people who don't have access to higher education, it's an incredible resource. Yes. And I don't think we really fully understand just how uh, dramatic this shift in how we process information and receive it um, is having on people. I feel like what we talked about about faith a minute ago, Rich, is important because if there is some limitless force expressing itself as consciousness and that was preceded all matter, then this thing, couldn't look after itself. Have you ever oh. heard like Terence McKenna talk about, he says like, whatever it is, the, you know, the truth, the revolution, it won't be tacky, it yeah. won't be phony, uh-huh. it won't be drab. Like, you know, like it's sort of, it's like that. This thing is, we're talking about great power, great, great power that the, you know, that the sages and the rishis are talking about that Christ is talking about. This is not some flimsy little thing that, oh no, will it be able to go up against the Republican party? If it can't, if it doesn't have the priapism and the virility and the power to overcome that, if it doesn't have the power to reach people where they need to be reached, then then it wasn't the truth anyway. So we don't need to concern ourselves with autonomy. We just need to open ourselves to, in my language, God, allow God to come through and uh, 
we'll be laughing. I, it goes back to what you were saying about Shakespeare and the 12 steps, the robustness of truth to withstand the countervailing forces of darkness. Yes. And to trust that uh, we need not worry because truth will prevail due to its robust nature. Because Adam Curtis again, like he said, like, um, you know, like we use metaphors that uh, unthinkingly, and Foucault would call this epistemes, we are unaware of what we're unaware of. So we use metaphors, like, you know, the metaphor that we were a bit machine-like came about in the time in the Victorian age when, uh-huh. in, in, of industrialization. He said that romantic, during the Romantic age, the, the, the idea was that nature is wild and crazy and powerful. And now we're all, oh, fucking hell, what are we going to do? You know, that mountains that surround us now, these are powerful things, powerful energies. And I feel that, if we can attune to that, if we can just allow that, you know, this will make a difference. I'm not suggesting that we become somehow passive. I imagine that it will be kind of active. I'm very interested in the body and becoming engaged mm. with the body because it's something I left much too fucking late and mm. need to learn about as a matter of fact. Yeah, well, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about that, but I can't let that last thing go. Oh. I think that I think that, that oh. we have plenty of room for, for, <laughs> for no, not in a challenging way, just to elaborate on it, I which know, is to so say lovely. this, we need more awe and wonder. And I think rationalism has left us deposited into this space where um, we do look at those mountains and we think, well, that's just because these atoms have aggregated in a certain way to create this thing. And there's an arrogance and a hubris around what we can know and what we do know to, the, to, to, to say, to the extent that we believe that we're capable of knowing everything and that everything can be reduced to an algorithm or a physical law. Yes. And my experience defies that. Yeah. But to speak to that publicly is to be maligned. It really is, isn't it? And I don't know how it possibly could be. I spoke to uh, uh, the physicist Brian Cox, who I really, right. really like actually. But he's a, you know, he he says he wouldn't describe himself as an atheist, but he don't think there's a god, and he thinks that everything can be understood rationally. So, you know, and I, I like him. I like. I'm not. I'm just using this as an example. I tried to say. Look, when people said the earth was flat, they actually fought it. When people thought that the sun went around the earth, they actually fought it. When like, you know, we we keep discovering more and more deeper and deeper and deeper truths. None of us it's very hard to speculate or hold what these great uh, epistemical epistemological shifts will uh-huh. be. We don't know what we don't know. We, and it's so obvious to me that as there are limitations to what we can see and hear because of the limits of the instruments through which we receive that information, the the that the limits of the instrument to receive information are not the limits of the information. If space is infinite, Mm. knowledge is infinite, wisdom is infinite, beingness itself is infinite. So how I suppose that pertains to the way that man organizes, the man organized their systems, mankind organized their systems is, well, what seems to be prevailing? What is universal? What is perennial? And what occur, recurs throughout our philosophies, love, kindness, unity, togetherness, oneness, these things, like these things must find their way into the way we organize yeah. society. And when it's the opposite of that, fuck you, survival of the fittest, a, a mangling of that idea because it came around, you know, like because Darwinism occurred at the same time of, uh, as economic and uh, technological ideas that it was convenient to sort of focus on the idea that, look, things will take care of themselves. Don't worry if people are starving in the gutter. It's some sort of, some force, some organizing force is taking care of that. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. 
But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Of course, the information uh, is infinite. Our ability to perceive and comprehend it is not. And the hubris comes in with this sense that we, we, we are equipped with all the facilities to understand everything. And yet we're just, you know, one millimeter more evolved from the ape, you oh, yeah. know, and whatever preceded that, right? Which are incapable of understanding things that we can. So, you know, why not consider the possibility that without some extra frontal lobe on our brain, that there's all kinds of things happening mm, that mm. right in this room that would fundamentally change how we see everything and yet we're incapable of fathoming it. Yes, this seems correct to me. And that, that rationalism is it, bloody good to understand engineering, good to understand material, good to understand science, to organize things, but to allow it to become the preeminent philosophical um, perspective is dangerous because it excludes the unknowable and the unknowable is almost everything. So I feel that- And that's terrifying. And all right as well. Yeah. You know, like sometimes don't you think, oh, just to fall backwards into death, maybe there'll be some relief in it, to fall backwards, to drown in it, to drown in the, <laughs> the kind sort of vibrant nothingness. I don't know. I know, I'm scared as yeah. well. What about my kids? Who's <laughs> gonna look yeah. after them when I'm in the nothingness? <laughs> well, let's talk about the body stuff. So you finally uh, you finally made this leap to veganism. Lots of people were waiting for you to do that. It's oh, been a long cool, time thanks. to come. It's been a long time coming. Um, so what happened? Fucking documentary that you're in, actually. I watched that Kip Anderson's bloody What the Hell oh, for what the whatever. Hell. Yeah. And like it sort of chimed so 
uh, neatly with my belief about how the world operates. Right. I thought, oh, fuck it. Because, like, I've always loved animals, you know, and I've always cared to a degree about my health. But when added to that was, oh, my God, it's a ruse. There's co- corruption behind this. Then yeah. that was enough. That just enough. hit your button. You were, yeah. like, primed for that, right? Yeah. I was ready for that. So that Rogan, Rogan tried to talk you out of it. He said that, didn't he, that there was a, yeah, that a lot of it sort of, and of course there's counter arguments or whatever, but I don't see sort of powerful vegan lobbying forces like around Washington. Right, and, that was the fallacy in his argument. I mean, the, the powerful broccoli lobby that wants you, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's not what's going on. No. Um, I mean, look, if you, wanna, if you wanna you know poke holes, you're gonna always be able to find some study that's gonna allow you to poke holes, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that movie and I'm glad that it compelled you. Yes, it did. Yeah. And I think it's consistent with your spiritual principles. I would imagine that there's a, a lightness and a, and a, and a, you know, a sense of alignment um, that comes with that. Yeah, it's made me feel. I, I think I like. I feel healthier. It's also making me. I am a person that needs to bring consciousness to everything because otherwise I go unconscious. So it's very good to not be able to just go. Oh, I'll eat that. I'll eat that. It's very good to have to consider what is this that you're putting in your mouth because there was a right. time where I wouldn't think twice. Straight in there, like my 11 month old daughter, oral everything straight yeah. in. The road gets narrower, though. It's like this thing, like the oh, vegan road give up. gets narrower. Well, it, just life, dude. Oh, yeah, As yeah. somebody who's you know on the recovery path, it's sort of an adage that gets thrown around, and it's so true. It's like, oh, I got to give up drugs. Oh, I can't, like you know, I can't fuck around anymore. Oh, I can't mm. gamble. I can't. Na- what? I can't eat like what I want to eat. Any? It's like it just consistently gets narrower and narrower and narrower. But my experience is that expansion comes with the letting go, and I've learned to not be afraid of those things. Um, and you know, on paper, it looks like your life is becoming more restrictive and curtailed and restrained, but the emotional, mental, spiritual experience of that is quite the opposite. Yes, uh, we've been taught that freedom is freedom to pursue our desires, but true freedom is freedom from our desires. Yes. The desires is not like this is, oh, I wonder how to do that. We're not babies. Because we're an additive society. It's all about adding, adding, accumulating. Yes. But the peace comes with the removing. I wonder how we will uh, cope when sacrifice becomes part of it. Did you see like uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that when the civil rights movement was formed around tight bonds, like people, when then people in universities in the South were coming together to like demand equality or whatever, uh, these relationships were strong. People were occupying buildings together, uh-huh. movements that take place, you know, invisibly across sort of telecommunications networks are unlikely to be as tight initially. I suppose that we do, that suggests that we do need to communicate directly, that we need to see each other's eyes, that we need to come together if we're going to bring about meaningful change, that we're going to like, again, like there's a really influential thing I talk about all the time where prior to Indian independence, Gandhi said, what's the point of us getting rid of the British if we just replicate the systems right. that mm-hmm. they use? It's just us doing mm-hmm. it and that, that is what happened. He said, mm-hmm. India is a country of 70,000 villages. All of these villages should be fully autonomous except mm-hmm. in matters affecting other villages. You know, we should be like, built on craft and trade. He goes, we have to get let go of our comforts. We're obsessed with comfort and gadgetry, he said in the 40s. You know, like what would he have made of the phones? You know, right. like, so, and it's very hard to convince, but like I'm happier when I'm I'm not continually 
checking the phone, I'm happier when I'm not obsessing, when I'm not placing. Like, look, the ultimate destination point is clear. It's written in probably 90% of the books on your table is you, the whole self has to go. That's right. when, you know, that's when it ends, is when you've let go of the belief that you're even an individual person. And that connection with other human beings provides the answers that you've been seeking your whole life through other avenues that and, you've been taught are the answer and turn out to be these false prophets. And to, yes, and to rationally underwrite that because it would seem, because in relationship with other people, there is the verification of oneness. If I put your happiness above mm. my happiness, it's like I am on some practical level recognizing why that is, we are one. Why is the concept of oneness so difficult? Why can't we be like bees and have this hive mentality where we just fully understand the universality of our conscious experience. I think we've got too much <laughs> yeah. into sensuality, haven't we? Yeah. You know, like the senses are very seductive. I remember when I was a very sensual person, it was all I did, wanted to do all day long. And I still like it. I still, I like mm. pleasure. I like that little bit of cheese, your wife give me like when I like when I tasted it and it's like oh good this isn't shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I'm gonna have to think of some lie to be nice. Uh, yeah, it's like I don't actually like this feeling. <laughs> I'm gonna eat all yeah. of this. <laughs> oh, push this into my ears and my asshole. Let's stuff my body with yeah. this thing. It will never end. There are no limits to it. So why? Why? Oh, sorry. We you teach say me something? some stuff about what should I do to become more fit and have less body fat. Well, you're be doing much more uh, lean and strong. What do you do? You just look run around good. the whole time. I just run all the time. Run, ride my bike, swim. I don't. So I don't do. Much? I don't do Brazilian jiu-jitsu though. That would just destroy me. Why? Maybe I should. Maybe I should You'd try be a class good at like it, that. wouldn't you? No, look at, I don't you. Think look at so. your lovely thick wrists. No, 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 no. I, I would not be good at that. I don't think. Why? Um, why wouldn't you? I, I, anything that involves coordination. Right, so that's good. why I'm I can, struggling. I can like run, but you know, it's tough. But you feel good on the vegan diet. I feel good on yeah, that. And I've been doing the BJJ. I would want to say this to you. Like, yeah, I do the BJJ. I love mm. it. But when I like, um, I love it and I'm not good at it. You know, or I'm learning. I'm yeah. learning. Don't tell myself negative things. Little Russell needs encouragement and love. I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> um, but like today when I like my wife was putting a new car seat in the car because the one that's in there, I don't know, it's not comfortable enough. Yeah. That two-year-old, she's got, a, she's got some specific taste. I thought, I'm going to say to Rich Rolls how sometimes how detached I feel from my body. My wife is active. She is of the earth. She knows how to be. She knows how to do things. Thank fuck. Because I'm like some gaseous little poet just floating around right. commentating. You know, like when she picks up that car seat, she gets in there. If you leave me to put the car seat in, I'll get, oh, it's too hard. I can't <laughs> do it. Oh, what's these fucking instructions? What do you mean top the top tether strap into the buckle loop? I looked at it. I went yeah, away. Yeah, but that's not how you're wired. You know, she oh. grounds you, but you can, you know. Show her the vision. Yeah, exactly. Like you need both of that. Right, yeah, we you know, can. You met, you met Julie, you can see that there's a similar kind of like yin-yang dynamic. Yeah, what is it with you guys? I mean, I'm much more grounded and practical and rational and she, you know, she's, you know, an ethereal being, Right. you know? And she allows me to expand my, my um, not only my perspective, but my sense of what's possible. She'll say, why don't you look at it from this perspective? And it's something I never would have thought of and a sense of belief, like a support and a belief in a different reality that she held for us. We've been together for a very long time. Oh, yeah. We've gone through a lot. And when we met, we were living completely different lives, but she held this vision 
that I could not have seen myself. So, you, and, and you, I think you, I would imagine I'm projecting completely, but that you fulfill that role in your own relationship. Yeah, it's the same actually. I mean, in the a sense of a, a vision as in uh, imagining and dreaming new spaces, yes. But it was my wife, we met when like, you know, sort of 11, 12 years ago and she, knew that we were meant to be together and uh -huh. I knew that I had to try and set world records for promiscuity. I've got to work for these records. So how did you how did you overcome that? Like did you just acquiesce over time or what was that process like for you? Uh, it actually wasn't the promiscuity ultimately that was problematic, but it was more difficult codependent relationships with uh -huh. inappropriate partners. Like in my case, just people that I wasn't, like I was very attracted to. There's a wonderful um, Robert Johnson. He's a uh, Jungian analyst who, uh, who breaks down myths and uses them as relationship tools. He wrote one called he, one called she, one called we. And like uh, he uses the Arthurian legend of Tristan and Isolde to break down that uh, this is a lovely bit of analysis actually, that the chivalric tradition of knights and that was to that, that a knight would fight for the honor of a woman. And that these, these tales are written in mythic language right. and we translate them literally. That's why, you know, when people talk about Disney films yeah, and stuff. It, it, it seeps down into every aspect of our culture and how we think about yes the male and female is right. in us in a in a fairy tale I'm not suggesting in the Disney version mm -hmm. I don't know what what objectives they have over there in that crazy castle but like in original <laughs> fairy stories the female is an aspect of it like with it, like as in dreams as in folk tales the individual the sovereign the king is the you know the seat within the self and like so in this Tristan and his older myth but like he breaks down this chivalric tradition where men or knights would fight for the honor of the you know the princess or whatever knowing that they would never be attained because they are some icon of the divine and the unattainable. We somehow used that motif for the foundation of romantic love. And like, if you look at sort of romantic art, romantic poetry, romantic films, it's like, oh, this yearning, this terrible mm. yearning that has no uh, uh, relationship to praxis. It has no relationship. How are we going to live this? Uh, in the myth of Tristan and Isolde, they're like, uh, he, then Tristan, the knight, falls in love with Isolde, who he was meant to go and fetch from an island for the king. And Isolde is an ethereal, magical creature. She came from an island. You have to get across the water to bring her back. And you know, none of these people are actual females or males. They're mythic archetypes. So, like, uh, you know, and he's in love with her, but he's not met. You can't be with yeah. that magical person. But when he meets, uh, what's her name? Isolde. Older, the white hands. She's a sister of a kinsman of his that he's fighting, you know, like alongside. And she, you know, he talks about in the myth that she's in the furnace, she's doing stuff with firewood and that. He can't be with her, he can't be earth. Because in, we are looking sometimes for the other person in our relationship to be an emblem of the divine yeah. and they are flawed, fallible people. But sometimes, you know, initially with that rush of early love, it's like, oh my so God. so intoxicating. Isn't it wonderful yeah. when, you, when that, you, you experience that? You know, when I'm watching a film, I think, oh God, to, to yeah. be 16, 18, 20, whatever, again, and to feel that delirium of, oh, this fucking person, they are God to me, they are God uh -huh. to me. Even better if they're broken. Oh yes, and then we can really get into yes. it. Then we can really destroy that, ourselves take in that, that roller place. coaster ride. Well, I after a few relationships like that, like after sort of exiting one, I felt like oh, well, to Jimmy, a mentor, mm. said uh, like. Uh, Lee goes, you can't keep doing that. Next time you see the sign pointing in the direction of yeah. glamorous, amazing relationship, maybe don't go that way. Yeah, it's so hard though. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's so very alluring. The flesh is alluring, and like in it that you know the, we don't. It's good. We are physical people. There's nothing wrong with the you know unto Caesar what is Caesar's and all that. There's nothing wrong with the bodies and the world and the. But you'd knock stuff. on that door enough time. I mean, you know, you know what that avails you. Yeah, and when I reconnected with my wife, I felt like, oh my god, I've been using totally the wrong metric. Was for, it? What do you mean reconnected? You had known her previous? Yeah, we known each other for eleven years. We went uh-huh. out when I was about in my early thirties, and she was like twenty. Maybe she was even nineteen, but that sounds worse, doesn't it? <laughs> like, but <clears throat> but anyway, like so, then I was went off to pursue uh-huh. the records, and then like and um, you know when we got back, uh, like we went on sort of one date, and on the first date, it was like. So what are you and she's like, yeah, I'm ready to be a parent. I'm like, yeah, me too. Mm. And that was, you know, like from then on, we sort of took it relatively slowly still. But I think that's only four years ago, and we're married, and we've got two children. Two and I'm like, I'm at peace. I know, uh, like it, the realness of it, the earthness of it. I'm no longer looking to uh, externally acquire happiness. So, to what do you attribute that shift? The program, the program, mm. the ability, because I'd known her. That could have happened at any point. You know, I'd known her for 10 years, but right. I just wasn't ready to see that. I wasn't ready to let go of the belief that, no, no, I, you know, I want to live this kind of life. I want to be this kind of person. And it's odd, actually, because there is a real superficiality to that sort of romantic and expressive and abundant love in that when those relationships ended, I was quite able to sort of go, oh, okay, because there was something yeah. about it that was a construct. It was taking place in my consciousness primarily. This relationship feels very, very, very deep, very earthed and real. Like this is a person that I wouldn't want to be without, you know, no, mm. I wouldn't want to be mm. without this person. So, mm. and it's, I'd, I'd not surrendered to that before. Yeah, and four years now. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Good. It's good, it's a relief. It's nice to think that there is nothing, like I don't, it's nice to have practices, I suppose. You know, I suppose the institution of marriage and coupling and stuff, I suppose it works in that it's beautiful to feel, you know, that idea of like, here, I am here. That's mm. it. I, like my little daughter says, I sit in my seat. <laughs> I sit in my seat. <laughs> I am here. Yeah. I'm not over there. I'm not looking over there for something else. There isn't some other new magical thing. No other agenda, being present mm. and in it, but also with enough awareness and personal development to understand that you know, you're not looking to this partner to complete you that that's your own personal journey that's your connection with your higher power and your your you know spiritual interior self and your relationship to spirituality in general right that that can't be solved um through relationship with another human being no no and i think that is the you know crux of of suffering for a lot of people it's good to have that it's good for to have some principles of like, you know, so next time I find myself going, Laura, will you do this? Why didn't you do that? I want this. Like the, t- oh, like that's that thing that's never going to work. You're doing uh-huh. it again. And every time I sell it to yeah. myself as, yeah, but though this time I am actually right. But right. really my relationship with other people is an opportunity to be of service. It's not an opportunity to be served. That's yeah. what I have to maintain. Do you have resistance to physical labor and work to being in the body? 
you know, because if you're doing all this fucking jumping around, swimming, cycling, swimming across things, running, like the, for you, it's easy, is it, to go into that? You don't think, oh, f- I can't be bothered. You're well, there are days. There are days that I don't want to do it, but but in general, it's it's my joy. It's what I prefer to do. But that doesn't mean that I want to go and dig ditches and do a bunch of errands and all the other kind of bullshit. You know, because for me, those pursuits, like being in nature with your, you know, just you and your breath and your your heart beating in your chest and the quietude is that's, you know, it's not meditation, but it is a spiritual practice for me. And yeah, it's exercise and all of that kind of thing. It's fitness, but really it's a it's a it's a means for me to more deeply connect with who I am and to wrestle with those, you know, age-old questions about identity and purpose and connection. And I find my I find many answers through that practice. I remember as long as it's not a replacement for recovery, pro- yeah. proper, you know, which is that's where I get into trouble. It can be part of step eleven. It can be part of conscious contact, but it can't. Mm, yeah, yeah. I not, agree with yeah. you. I agree with you. So, what you have moments where you are sort of at one. You find yourself definitely. And I wouldn't say like some people say, "Oh, that's my meditation." Like, no, it's not. Meditation is meditation. That's a very specific thing. There are meditative aspects to it. You know, you can call it an active meditation, but qualitatively, it's not meditation. But it is a, um, it is a, it's it's an it's a practice that's more than just physical. I would say. Yes, yes, because mm. at least lines, just, I think when we are dharmically connected, those lines perhaps begin to disappear between physical action. It become, all things can become worship. Mm. I agree with you that meditation should be practiced sat yeah. still with yeah. your eyes shut because yes. you know, when you say, oh, my meditation is riding a bike or something or listening mm. or watching the TV, mm. you know, you're like you're not being confronted with what it is like to observe and let go of the thinking mind. Correct. You know, and if, if when we, to return to the macro point of the way that we organize societies, perhaps that happens, perhaps society is organized in the manner that it is because not enough people have a sense of the sacred and divine. We're not cultivating that relationship because as individuals, we're not having a meditative or transcendent experience. So no one, nobody knows how to practice these principles in all their affairs. No one knows how to live that because they're only thinking. Yeah, that is certainly correct. And I think that goes hand in hand with kind of the 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 downfall of organized religion. And with all its problems, there, you know, was an aspect of that that was served through those institutions that doesn't exist to the extent that it once did. And so we have this vacuum. It's very interesting. I I listened to a podcast just last night um, with Ezra Klein, who's a a political pundit and David Brooks, you know, the political journalist, David Brooks is like a conservative journalist. Um, And he was talking about, it was fascinating because he was talking about this very subject, how he had become this workaholic, a very successful, well-regarded um, you know, person in the space of political journalism at the very highest level uh, and the vacuum in his life that it created because he didn't value connection and relationships because he couldn't be bothered because it was always inconvenient and he couldn't rationalize the, the time investment that it required and the kind of existential spiritual crisis that it provoked in a most unlikely you know, character. 
and this journey that he goes on. And he just wrote this book about it. And I just found it to be like, it's one thing for you and I to talk about these sort of things, but to, to have that, you know, in the costuming of somebody that you would not expect, I think carries a certain powerful resonance with it because a guy like that is able to um, speak to a certain sector of the population that perhaps is disinterested in what Russell Brand has to say. The poor sods, yeah. <laughs> you know the, the poor fools out there in the wasteland, <laughs> in the wilderness of no yeah, Russell right. Brand. No, I, I agree with you that it is appealing and attractive to, because uh, I suppose it verifies our sense of truth to hear that someone that's devoted themselves to a conservative outlook, a political mm. outlook. And, I, and, and the openness to, I mean, part of that evolution was his ability to change his mind, you know, which I think is, um, we're in an epidemic right now of being so calcified around our ideas because they threaten our identity. And that's something that, you know, must remain unshakable to entertain the alternative is terrifying for a lot of people. And I think it keeps us stuck in these conversations that are, you know, kind of driving culture off a cliff in a certain way, because we can't have nuanced dialogue. Don't you wanna get people on your podcasts that are like, outrageous folk, you know? I mean, I sort of do and I sort of don't. I don't see- Sometimes my, people go, like, no, you yeah, shouldn't yeah. let them on. <laughs> yeah. They're too, you don't give them oxygen. Cause I sometimes nearly do and right. then I get scared. I mean, I, I think there's, it's it's like, would you have Alex Jones on your podcast? I sort of- You would, like, right? Because, see, I probably wouldn't, Cause but I, I understand. I sort of adore something about uh -huh. Alex Jones. Like there's something <laughs> about him is he's a bullion. He's mm. kind of, I kind of like it. Like, you know, yeah. and like that one, him on Rogan that time. I, was like, I couldn't, I got hell. like a half an hour into it and I couldn't, I couldn't finish it because it was so it. bananas. Yeah, because <laughs> he's out there, isn't he? And I thought I've sympathetic. I've met Alex a couple of times and I, I suppose I only part company when, this is the thing I'm trying to do, is like that if you have a spiritual life, it is for you. It's not something that you would inflict on other people. Like if your spiritual life is, here's my spiritual life, they shouldn't fuck each other. <laughs> How's that gonna help you? You know, like if your spiritual life is, this is what I'm gonna do to be okay with the world. You know, it's only when people start to get caught up in, you know, the impulse, the patriotism is merely a reappropriated tribal impulse that's inhered within human beings necessarily for us to socialize that's been uh, reappropriated and attached to abstract ideas in order to control a population and it gets to the point where people aren't willing to see there is no England there is no America there is no France it's all like completely fucking made mm -hmm. up so people get but you know like a century ago you know young Americans and young English people were, were being asked to give their lives away. So no wonder, like now people are like, I don't want them fuckers coming over here, living here, stealing our jobs. They've been generation deep told that this is real, kill for it, fight for it, it's real. It's definitely not an abstract concept made up, resourced from the same principles of the religion that we have believed that we've progressed beyond believing in. It's just like as a template, it's identical, a Godhead, mm. uh, an inside group and an outside group. You know, so like how I like, and, and I feel like, you know, I don't know if I would like, you know, I. I think that there might be more value. Like, e.g., I had Candice Owens on mm. the podcast, and like, and I found her to be absolutely adorable. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, that's a, that was. A, I listened to that, and I found it fascinating because I completely disagree with almost mm. everything that she's about, and yet she was rather delightful in that conversation with you, and you had kind of a really fun banter. She made me laugh, and man. I think it is important to have 
conversations, you know, with people that you disagree with. Like this is the salve upon this wound that yeah. we have right now. If we stay polarized, it's, the, the tension of it is not good. After the podcast finished, there's a bit where she went, um, she goes, what do you think about immigration, Russell? And I was like, well, you know, I think we should be inclusive. And she goes, yeah, I know what you think. That, let's just let everybody in and let's just march around and skip around together. And she did it and it's like, she's being sort of self-parodic. But I spoke to oh. Henry Giroux and Brad Evans that are much more kind of uh, brilliant post structuralist, left-leaning philosophers. And they were like, don't be seduced by the individual charm of people because that's often used as a kind of lubricant for yeah. these, like, you know, wacky and ideas. They're, and they're very, they're very aware of it. And this is, this is what scares me because, you know, fundamentally, like, I'm a pathological people pleaser. My uh. biggest goal is, is Russell gonna like it? I gotta, when Russell leaves here, I want him to like me, you know, or oh, I want my guests to like, you feel. know what I mean? Just I a want, couple of people wanting to be liked. <laughs> yes, what? I navigate the world couple in that way. Couple of useless sweethearts. But as a podcast host, that makes you rife for manipulation. You know what I mean? If you have a charismatic person sitting across from you who represents a, a point of view that is something you disagree with, it's very easy for me to become, um, you know, swayed right. by their personality. I've heard and other this people innate say that. character defect of of wanting to feel connected to another human being. I do want to feel connected to other human beings. I do, I do. But like, I feel like that if people like you can track it though, Rich, in it, like you like they've like, hold on, that's mad, that's great. No, <laughs> yeah. as soon as they start saying, and these people shouldn't be allowed to do that, you're, hold on, that's that thing, right. that's that thing. But what if it happens an hour later? <laughs> that you? realization. Right. Well, you've got you know, to concentrate. Yeah, I think see, if you are going to talk to racists, <laughs> <laughs> when chatting to a racist, think right. Is this? Are they saying something racist yet? Because I mean, you are. Right, they're right. so nice. They brought cookies. I know. I loved them. Like they are quite nice. What about? Have you ever? I keep talking about this, and I probably shouldn't. I sort of watched Steve Bannon on the internet do a, an address of the Oxford Union because I thought, right, this is that Steve Bannon that I've heard about how bad he is. Let's watch him on the Oxford Union. He. I mean, it was. It's almost as a piece of theatre, you should watch it. He arrives in a rain-spattered Mac. You can hear the protesters in Oxford, like, uh, like chanting, rah, rah, get him out of there, get him out uh -huh. of there. He sort of comes in like sort of a gumshoe detective, you know, like, and he's like, just, he goes, and like, he, he, for about an hour, he doesn't say anything I disagree with. He talks about the financial crash, the implications of it, the corruption, the relationships between the financial industry and, and Washington. He doesn't at any point go, and that's why this group of people should be excluded or these people should be. He doesn't talk about religions or races or, econo or gender or sex or economic classes. All he talks about is elites. And he said, you know, and in it, he said, the one thing that I really agreed with, you know, Populism is the future. All that's being decided is whether it's left-wing or right-wing populism. That's mm. the only thing that we're debating right now. Like so, and, and I would challenge people to watch that because obviously I watch it from the perspective of I don't, like instinctively, I don't agree with people that are condemning of other people on the basis of some sort of ethnic or external data because I think people my deepest belief is people are all the same but like so for, but for me that challenge is a bit of a progressive lefty type of person is to be tolerant and willing to engage in dialogue with people that are to look for what is what is it that I agree with uh, you know that uh, Donald Trump or uh, Tommy, Tommy Robinson in my country or like, you know what is it I agree with what is it that I can share with them you know, I, I've, you know, yeah. like I've not been bold enough to put that into practice because I can't be asked with the fucking hex of, you shouldn't give them a platform, you're giving them oxygen. Well, yeah, because everything is so heightened right now, the sort of social price that you pay for taking that risk isn't yeah. worth it for most people, you know? And I think there's a chilling effect on that. But it is interesting that you as a, you know, progressive liberal, myself as well, 
you know, a social justice warrior, you know, to entertain the ideas of Steve Bannon and go, oh, maybe there's an idea there or two that I should think about and entertain. When I hear that, I see somebody who has, you know, kind of transcended this former personality, like the guy who was doing the trues back oh, in yeah. the day probably wouldn't have had that kind of perspective. But one of the things you said at the outset here was like, I don't, you know, you're kind of past getting caught up in the vicissitudes of the daily political discourse because these are systemic and they're not based on, you know, we can't get caught up in the personalities that are driving them. That arch, that's Will thanks. That arch uh, exponent of the neoliberal experiment who along with Clinton, Bill Clinton took it to the point where inverted commas, ordinary working people no longer felt represented by left of center politics. Tony Blair, it was one of his famous maxims while still a shadow home secretary before you know elected to government was tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Uh -huh. And I feel that you can apply that tough on racism, tough on the causes of racism. <laughs> yeah. What's causing this racism? Oh, well, all of these people feel disenfranchised and that they're not included in society. How are we going to stop them from being racist? Well, I suppose they're going to have to feel that their <laughs> life is meaningful and that they're incorporated. How, how inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, a, you know, like, I feel like my, one of my mates sort of said, um, you can't cure hate with more hate. It's always got to be love. Certainly it's not. always got to be, you've got to keep loving them. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. I would like to talk to you for like two more hours, but your publicist will... Assassinate I've got me. a publicist now. You've got to like. Can I promote yeah. these things? I must promote because otherwise, what happens is they yeah. listen back and they go, "You didn't promote those things. You promoted that book of I mine." I did, and I read it, and I loved it. I Thank you. That's you've promoted and the you know, arts it's, out it's, of that. It's, it's it's a short, easy read too. Short and easy. Yeah, What's what more do you want from what? What do you, what want? Do you want to a say Talmud? about mentors? I think it's. Uh, I don't know. I like what you just said. Uh, th th that's been promoted very successfully. Now, Luminary is the other thing because mm. they're paying for the publicist, yes. Luminary. So uh, there is Luminary. So you have, I am you've, on Luminary. You've, uh, yeah, you've migrated completely over to Luminary now. On the 20th of every other platform. Yeah, that's right. If you sign up through this link, you can have Under the Skin for free for another three months. But I'm on the premium content strata right. of it. So three months, three months for free, and uh, and then after that, it goes behind a little bit. Yes, of a, five quid, six quid. And for those that don't know, Luminary is a new company that's sort of um, trying to be, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, the Netflix of podcasting. That's right. Um, I think that is a good way got, of describing it. Recruited a number of high-profile folks like yourself to yeah. create for for them. They've given us money. Now, mm. what like uh, happened was, is uh, I on my podcast yesterday, it's not been out yet, but I spoke to Lena Dunham, who's just mm. absolutely lovely, lovely. Cool. And Car Caramo out of Queer Eye, because mm. them two that got That one's people. live now, yeah. That one's already out, right? Because they're both on Luminary, that's why I'm mentioning yeah. them. Lena Dunham, Caramo, I think Trevor Noah, he ain't been on the show yet, but what I'm saying is, is that I've now promoted Luminary and no one can say I have. <laughs> Because <laughs> no, that was it, just being promoted. Oh, and I'm doing live shows. Are you gonna? Yeah. I feel like uh, me and my wife should come around your house, but that's not how invites work, is it? You don't say me and my wife should come around your house you're, to you're, a person, uh, do you? You're welcome to come by. I've got we'll you. cook for you. Would you? Because yeah, I think we'll I think my wife would like your meal. wife. I, I think yeah, I would yeah. like it. And what's the other thing? Oh yeah, I'm doing these live shows yeah. like in Los Angeles, and I think you would like them, and I think your wife would like them. Yeah, it's you're doing me one at Wanderlust soon, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. When did with this podcast? Be live. I don't know. Probably not for a little bit, though. 
What do you do? Store them up like <laughs> yeah, a squirrel? Do, yeah. Keep it in your cheek? Keep these little and go nuts. running across a fucking yeah. mountain for eight hours. <laughs> find God staring at a crack in a rock <laughs> and saying, I know everything's one. Right. Get back down from the mountain and put a podcast Put it up out, right away. A pint that's germane well, the, to the, my marketing the requirements. Pe- the people pleaser in me will have this up by tonight. <laughs> Oh, you're yeah, so sweet. Uh, isn't it um, interesting that we've just spoke about nothing but God and getting rid of the material world? But the fact things. is, is that at the end of the podcast, we're going, right, now the material world is real. Go out and buy right. this fucking material right now. We should properly uh, say what's up to Stephen and David Flynn because they're the ones that introduced yeah, us. Yeah, the happy yes. pair. So lovely. They're in that book. I, are, I know. I love that they got a shout out, shout out in the book. I was very taken with them. What mm. I liked about them, lads, was I like... I have to learn, I had a, I like versions of maleness that I feel like, oh, I can role model that. Mm. And they were very sort of very male, but so sort of generous and sweet and sort of loving. But, you know, that's, but I very nearly allowed myself to jump off of a peninsula because of that. I know that, I've jumped off of that peninsula. You've been there. I have, of course. Is that what you did the podcast with them in Ireland? I've done a couple, yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with those guys. They're really lovely, aren't they? Of course you're like vegan gangsters. But the cynic in me, did you find this, like the cynic in me is like, they can't be like this all the time. Like, what's what's it like when? Right, where's the dark side? Yeah, yeah, Come yeah, on. Yeah. I want to see the Let dark side. Let me watch side, you masturbate. But I'm, I, don't think, I don't think it's there. <laughs> I think they have transcended the dark side. I didn't see any darkness. Yeah. I was studying them. I couldn't even work out. Like we went around, <laughs> me and my wife and kids, we went around like this um, house of theirs. It was like a farm and people like, were making oh, cheese pe- on like toast so Pearville. slowly. Vegan cheese. Yeah, yeah. Pearville. There was a little <laughs> yeah. pig, a nice pig. Yeah. You know, like, it was so lovely. And like he, one of them, Stephen, I think, had his top off. They always had their top off the whole time. Of course. Had his top off. And as soon as my wife we were getting stuff out of the car and he was like, oh, do you want me to carry that baby? And like, we was like, oh yeah. He had that baby for so long. Too long, uh-huh. in my opinion. Maybe an hour and a half of having a baby. That's a long while, isn't it, to have a baby pressed against you? It's did my do, baby. Did he do handstands with the baby? Oh man, another thing that was fucking amazing <laughs> is I've done podcasts with him and this rather not swallow, yeah, right? I know, I is texted you after that. I, <laughs> do you remember I texted you and I was like, I can't believe you got them to sit still for five minutes? Well, that was a challenge and they weren't yeah. still immediately before it. Radhanat Swami is a down, like he's also mentioned it in right. the mentors book. He's holy, that he's guy, He's Prabhupada's right? like disciple. Who's he's Prabhupada's right. chosen, yeah. you run the Hare Krishna movement, which let me tell you, they're uh-huh. no slouches. They're, they've got some power, those dudes. So like Radhanat Swami, like you see him, he's one of the people who make you a bit hot because of like, he's, you know, he is staring. Uh-huh. You know, like there's some serious staring happening, but he's brilliant with the Bhagavad Gita. He's switched on full on Swami. When you go see him in India at his temple, they're throwing themselves at his feet, you know, like literally prostrate on the floor like that. Uh-huh. Like, oh, so fucking Full on lying down. Face down, not enough yeah. to kneel before Zod, as uh, Zod suggested to Superman. <laughs> Lay face down before Zod. Even Zod didn't ask for that. So like, they were in, like, I did the podcast back to back in a live venue in opposite their joint in wherever that was right. on the west coast of Ireland. Greystones. Greystones. What an amazing place. And like, so he, like, I'd done them lads, and then I was crossing over into doing Radnot Swami. So we were in, like, a green room, but it was just some sort of anti-room in, like, this theatre venue, right? And he was, like, Radnot Swami sat there, like, in okra robes, sat all, like, upright, beaming, wow. shaved heads, you know, maybe even some sort of chalk. So he did have, like, you know, chalk bindi type stuff down his yeah. forehead. And, like, them lads were like, what's that on your head? And t- <laughs> touching him. And then, like, uh, and then so he goes, would you like to see me not your latest trick? 
I'm like, did a fucking Einstein a monk? And he goes, oh, yes, I'd like to see that very much. <laughs> They're walking around on their hands. I was like, have you met a monk before? I don't think you're meant to do all but this. But isn't there something them. beautifully refreshing about that? <laughs> They're joyful. They're absolutely yeah. terrific, beautiful, lovely men. Yeah, really liked him a lot. I'll tell you another thing about the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm doing it over here with a Hibero school, being trained by Professor oh. Ricardo Wilk. You've got to call him, Professor. Um, it's full of respect, this culture. So like, uh, but the other day though, there was a teacher. I don't know if he was, he was a little camp. I don't know, mm. how can I know what his sexuality was? But like, you know, there's a presumed machismo around right. the world of martial arts, even though there's some of the loveliest people I've ever met, most generous. This guy that was teaching, he was a little bit camp. I was like, blew me away to see someone go okay right so now we do and it, like and now we do this <laughs> I, like, I sort of i fell in love with him a little bit uh-huh. i told my wife when i got in i said like this man he's your was new favorite bjj teacher camp and then tough uh-huh. i mean he's blown my mind rich what a world what right. a, an odd world of collision and paradox right. welcome to los angeles uh-huh that's where go. i am yeah, I really liked it. There's so much to learn, isn't there? Hold on a minute. Like, what, what, I want to have some bit of information that's going to make me better at exercising because like, I'm, I'm holding that car seat. I can't find it in myself yeah. to care. And, Where and am I going to resolve this? Jiu-Jitsu's not doing it for you? Yeah, it is. <clears throat> what about yoga? I like, I'm doing a lot of hot yoga. You do a lot yeah. of yoga, I'm guessing, do you? You a look bit, pretty much, limber. Not as much as I should. Mrs. does a lot, does she, Julie? Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, Quite like, I do bit. enough yoga. Yoga come to me. Yeah, like they say, hey, this is a thing a person told me. Like, that in Hindi, the phrase, or, you know, you would say, I speak French. Right. Like, in Hindi, they say, Hindi comes to me. Isn't mm. that beautiful? That even the speaking of a language is regarded not as something that you've gone, oh, I love that. <laughs> that yes. it's regarded as something that flows through you, a limitless vibration. That is beautiful. People How can I alive. help you with your fitness, though? Well, I think you want to go running with me. All right, then. How we'll fast that. is it? Is it quite fast? No, do it's I not need fast. special shoes? I'm scared. No. Right, hold on. Regular shoes. Your team say it fast. is fast. No, no, no. Not do you that go, fast. You go I go. No, no, no. The speed of the slowest I, person. I have like I can go. I go slow. I just go. What far is a mile long. covered in? It depends. Depends on who I'm well, with. Here's if we go, slow, well, we go. We go. Minutes. We go. However you want to go. All right. I'll, I'll take you out. I'll take that experience. Trail. That sounds like yeah. a lovely experience. How long will the run be going for? As long as you want it to. How long would it, it be? Bend time for oh, hours. Right. I'd like to lose myself in there. Yeah. All right. We'll get you out you there. You do seem extremely fit. <laughs> no. <laughs> I got my work cut out for you. <laughs> All right. Your, uh, your publicist is going to kill me, so we got to let you go. I've got to go home. But uh, To the children. I appreciate it's it. That's work. your heart out? No That's your heart out, I was told. You have a heart out. Yeah, you gotta, you have babies. To leave at four. And I want to go before the traffic starts going that way, and mm. I get home, and the babies, and I'll be able to play oh, with my I babies. Got you. Right. I haven't got any jobs. That's good. I'm unemployable. Yeah, the, 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 listening. The there's, rock, no, there's no market yeah, for that. No, yeah. The Rock isn't waiting for you right now. The Rock ain't waiting for no one. That's got to be a trip. Tell you that. That's got to be a trip working with that guy. He's like a pharaoh. Yeah, he's got like sort of he's got chief energy. Is what I'd say. He's got sort of the energy of a king. From a, a like a non-European culture, he's like literally like a benevolent scorpion king. Exactly, he was really like when I first met him. Like he's really beautiful uh-huh. and like sort of kind and easy. But he's in that peninsula of fame where you're ushered off in cars the whole time. Do you know what I mean? There's always people yeah. wrapped around you. But like there's a like when I done the first season of Ballers, I like I made this mental choice: don't be an arsehole. 
It's a yeah. subtle thing, but it helps in a working environment. I'll do whatever people ask me, I said on that job. I'm going to not like make things difficult. Just be there, be amenable and easy. Mm. Uh, I'm and like the thing about this job on Ballers is- Was that a contrast from previous work experiences? Yeah, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to use this job as to a way as to- difficult as possible. This work really uses to work through my psychosis, my feeling yes. I'm not good enough. The world's oh, I not can, good enough. I can dump my shit on that guy over there. I don't think they can do anything if I'm really unbearable. <laughs> so, like, um, yeah. so I thought, no, I'm just going to, like, you know, when I'm at work, my primary purpose is to do a good job at my work. I mm. work for these people. I've got a contract with these people. Don't If I'm questioning what am I doing, am I being kind to the people around me, am I being useful? These are all things that take me so long to learn, so obvious, aren't they? And like, anyway, so I'm uh, being, I think, I won't say no to any things they ask me to do. And, like, but the joy of ballers if it may be so bold, is that all my scenes are things like Russell or the character I play walks in a room, says some stuff, leaves the room. It's never, is on a horse, jumps out of an helicopter, smashed in the face. It's nothing like that. And I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. What a breeze of a job. And then like the wonderful director of the last season, this fellow Julian Farino, English fellow, called me on day two and goes, oh, we thought it was so wonderful looking scene on Malibu Beach where when you're talking to uh, Dwayne and to Rob Corddry, the brilliant comic Uh actor that does all the scenes with Dwayne. Because if you, like at the end of the conversation, take all your clothes off and walk naked into the sea on Malibu Beach, <laughs> not stated uh-huh. in front of hundreds of extras. I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't, and I go to my wife, like, you know, I said that thing, I'm going to say yes to everything and I'm going to be compliant and easy to work with. What do you think? Shall I do it? She goes, yeah, just say yes. And I'm like, so I go, yeah, I will do that. So like that means the next day I'm going to have to do, I'm nervous about being mm. naked in that situation. I get um, my wife the night before to take a photograph of my arse so that I can see what my arse looks like. Now, here's the key thing. If you're having, if you ever have to get your arse out, you don't have to worry. Look, you've got no fat on you. But for uh-huh. normal people, don't tense it. You think tensing it is going to peach it up, but no, it does. That dimples and wrinkles. <laughs> Relax the ass. Relax uh-huh. the ass, as Frankie Goes to Hollywood used to say. So, like, um, I learned what was the optimum state for my ass before doing it. Obviously, when these situations, like, there was loads of paparazzi there and loads of extras, and yeah. the Rock is a exec on that show. So, I goes, I'm a bit nervous about doing this, Marseille, in front of all these people. And he was, oh, yeah. And he was like a benevolent king. And he went, oh, let me organize this for you. And he organized all the extras to line up in flanks, facing away, mm. to form a human wall to stop paparazzi taking pictures of me. And I had to walk into the sea with a, what is called a cock sock over my reproductive yeah. organs, all trussed up in there, <laughs> like that. Uh-huh. It's a very weird moment when you take off your coat and you're naked and you know that your ass is sort of being looked at. Uh-huh. So I'm like, action! And then you walk naked towards the sea. It's a very strange feeling, you know. And then... It created a sort of... Don't you sometimes think that in your life there's some weird glitch in the Matrix moment where everything goes mad? Because in this moment where I was doing that, I'm feeling all self-conscious and walking away from The Rock, who's last on the list of men I want to be naked in front of, by the fucking (laughs) way. Like he... Like uh, Gary Busey appeared, who's not in the show, appeared out of nowhere in a car with the alarm going off with a little pale kid, what was his kid, Uh and the little kid was like the mayor of Toy Town, going, hey, hey! And I was like... Why, why reality's <laughs> broken? There's Gary Busey, there's a car alarm going off, the rocks talking to Gary Busey. Gary Busey at a distance did not look like Gary Busey, but a person who had fallen through the cracks of society. No, I know. I mean, I see him around Malibu all the time. He had a bit of food on his face. That you yeah. could, it was as prominent as a feature. Yeah. Like it was like a nose. It was a second nose that's made out the, of cake. T- that's the TV show I want to see. 
It was good. Just the they orchestration around all of that is more compelling. That is the thing the about show a lot of TV shows yeah. is that the infrastructure and the thing that's not seen is, you know, uh -huh. yeah. What's but <laughs> the unseen is so beautiful. But the point being that The Rock marshaled his copious superpowers to create good. this human wall to protect you. So if he ever does Young go into Russell politics, and his frail, let's back him. And his frailty. Yeah, yes. that's, uh, that's the real message. <laughs> yes. So now I have a three-dimensional picture of this human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing else. All right. All right, man, rich. I'm gonna let you go home. Thanks, um, thank you, my friend. Mentors, <laughs> check it out. Check out Under the Skin on Luminary and uh, Rusty Rockets. Yeah, you can promote Twitter, that. All those kind of places. No one can say it's cool. not been promo. All right, come back and talk to me again. Thank you. Peace. Thank you, thank you. That was nice. What do you think? I thought it was pretty good. He's a very sweet guy, right? He's very gentle and I just found him to be so present and generally delightful. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that as well. Please let Russell know, share your thoughts, your ruminations on today's conversation. You can hit him up on Twitter at Rusty Rockets and at True, T-R-E-W, Russell Brand on Instagram. Check out his latest book, Mentors, How to Help and Be Helped. Uh, subscribe to his podcast, Under the Skin on Luminary. Uh, and you won't regret it. As always, please visit the episode page at ritual.com to peruse the copious show notes that we endeavored to compile from this conversation to extend your edification of this man beyond the earbuds. If you are struggling with your diet, if you finally have decided, I need to master this, but you feel like, I don't really know how to cook. I don't have a lot of extra time or disposable income. I don't have the culinary skills I see when I turn on the television and watch these cooking shows. If you find yourself relating to that, then I can't stress enough how much I think our Plant Power Meal Planner can really help you. It really is an amazing product that we worked very hard to devise and solve a very basic problem, which is how to make nutritious eating convenient and delicious and time efficient. Uh, to find out more, go to meals.richroll.com and there you will get access to literally thousands of delicious, easy to prepare plant-based recipes that are completely customized based on your personal preferences. We offer unlimited grocery lists. It integrates with grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas. So all the things that you need to prepare these recipes just magically appear at your doorstep. And we have an incredible team of nutrition coaches at the ready to answer all of your questions seven days a week. And you get all of it for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year, literally the price of a cup of coffee. So to learn more and to sign up, again, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, there are a couple simple ways to do that. Just tell your friends about it, share your favorite episode face-to-face -face or on social media, take a screen grab of what you're listening to, share it if you tag me. Sometimes I share those out as well. Hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to this. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that's super important. And you can extend your support by uh, showing us some love on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. We really appreciate all our patrons. 
Thank you very much for that. Uh, I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. I do not do this alone. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, for production, for show notes, for interstitial music. Thank you, Jason. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin who video this show uh, and edit it beautifully and then create all the short clips that we share on social media. Jessica Miranda for her graphics her talent, her wizardry. DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships. Thanks DK. And theme music as always by Analemma. Appreciate the love you guys. I will see you back here uh, in a couple days with the great Dr. Gemma Newman. This is a uh, podcast that I recorded with the Plant Power Doctor when we were in Italy on our retreat, a live kind of event. It's a good one. Uh, until then, peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.